Beautiful. Well, good morning. Well, as I get set up here, I'd like for you to turn to your neighbors. You don't have to get up and just say, Jesus died to make us family. Say that to three people around you, yeah? Praise the Lord. Well, if you notice, I've got a bigger smile on my face today. There's two reasons. One, wifey's here today. So she lights up the room for me, giving me four beautiful kids. I showed you guys a picture last week, right? But now it's the, it's the real thing. And she's taken, guys. She's taken. Going on 13 years this, this October. Yeah. Praise God. The second reason I'm happy is last week, you know, I wasn't sure the uh, dress code, you know, for pastors here at this church. So I, I, I had a, a suit, a coat on, and brother over here after service told me, hey, we're, we're, we're a pretty casual church, you know, you don't have to. And then I looked at some of the uh, videos of Pastor Jonathan preaching, and I go, oh, yeah, he's, he's pretty casual. So I feel a lot better because I'm going to sweat less, you know? <laughs> By the way, if anyone needs to get baptized, you just come right here, and we will baptize you with the sweat, okay? Hey, can you join with me by going to John chapter 13? We're going back because, as you guys recall, if you were here last week, this was a two-parter. And um, kind of my preaching style at my church, a little different than some pastors, I, I kind of preach the way my dad raised me to mow the lawn. So the way my dad raised me to mow the lawn was you, you, you make a line, and then when you, when you come back around, half of the mower covers the half that you already did, and you really ensure that you really covered it all, right? And so that's kind of the way I preach. And so some of this might seem redundant, but as the Apostle Paul would tell the Philippian church, the things that I'm telling you may seem tedious and repetitive, but they are to your benefit. Amen? Well, can you join me? John chapter 13, verse 34. And if we can, just stand once more as we read the scripture, God's word, and more important than our physical standing, more important than our physical posture is the posture of our heart. May our hearts be one of receptiveness to the word of God. Amen? I'll read the word and we will open in prayer. A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as we read in the scripture how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters come together in unity. Lord, what a picture of your heart. For God, you are triune. You are a community within yourself. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with perfect love and humility towards one another, you make us in your image according to your likeness, so it would make sense that your, your desire for your people is that we might reflect that united nature of yours 
in our gathering. Lord, teach us today through your word. Teach us, Father, how to fulfill this new commandment. We come to you not as experts. We come to you as learners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, some have suggested that the Gospel of John is essentially two books in one. Chapters 1 through 12, some would say, are the book of signs. And people would point out that there are seven signs, seven acts of divinity that really showcase Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah. But then Bible commentators notice a drastic difference once you get to John chapter 13. Some have called it the second book of John, the book of passion. Because from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, what we call the upper room discourse, five chapters, 155 verses of the pure passion of Jesus on display. We see a small window, just a few hours, just laid out over 155 verses for us. And we get to see the heart of Christ. In fact, John Calvin, on his commentary on this section of the Gospel of John, would say, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they sort of exhibit the body of Christ. But here, from John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, we have the exhibition of his soul. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, the upper room discourse is a window into the heart of Christ. Friends, we see in this section the pure, unadulterated version of the heart of Jesus, the core of who he is. Now, I don't know how many of you, um, I think this appeals more to men, but sometimes on my YouTube homepage, I get these videos of these giant metal hydraulic presses and then people throw like cars into these giant hydraulic metal presses. They throw large items and then you just watch this machine just crush, you know, cars and other crazy things um, and, and, and just crushes it. And, and, and really, what a picture of what's going on here. Jesus in this section is being pressed. He's got betrayal coming his way. He knows his disciples will abandon him. He knows that the justice system of his day will not be a justice system. He knows the religious leaders will lie and give false accusations. He knows that he'll be physically tortured. And of course, he knows that there's a divine abandonment that he will also go through as the propitiation of our sin. He knows all of this. And what happens when all of hell is pressed against the heart of Jesus. What oozes out? Reveals. Getting down and washing his disciples' feet. Not being adored with majestic purple robes as the kings of his day would. Taking up a towel, fill in the bowl, and washing dirty feet in the presence of dirtier hearts. As you guys recall from the context, he's at the Passover table. Thirteen men climbed up the stairs into a small room for a Passover meal. And they began to throw insults at one another, judgmental scowls, as they were arguing who should be the greatest in the kingdom. 
Yes, Jesus washed dirty feet, but there were dirtier hearts there. He washes each of their feet, including Judas, before Judas leaves the room. John's John's gospel makes that clear. And then he tells them, what you've seen me do to you, you also wash one another's feet. He challenged them to become servants. Now, friend, becoming a servant is different than serving. Can I share with you what I mean by that? See, the Pharisees were capable of external acts of service, but the disposition of their heart was not one of being a servant. Jesus called his disciples, his followers, his copies, his little me's. He said, if you've seen me and if I'm your master and I've done this for you, you also ought to be my servant and wash one another's feet. And with betrayal coming and with their attention, he tells them, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Now, this new commandment, Bible commentators have discussed at great length, what does the idea of a new commandment mean? I'm of the perspective that it's, it's not so much that it's a, a, a new commandment in the sense of novel. What, what really the new commandment is, is actually the fulfillment of what God has already said in his word with the other commandments. See, what Jesus does here that is different in the minds of his learning disciples, these 20-year-old men, is he says, yes, you know that the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, you know you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But I'm going to say, I'm going to add to this, it was already there, you just missed it. What I'm saying is part of loving God and loving people is even washing the feet of arrogant betrayers, of washing the feet of those that are about to desert you. See, this idea of the new commandment is Jesus just pressing in and giving giving greater clarity to the previous commandments God has already given. Now imagine being one of these disciples. You've never left Israel. Your nation is oppressed. They're enslaved by Rome. You're in your 20s, and Jesus says right here, the world, the world will know that you are my disciples. Jesus puts into their mind that what he started and what he's training them to do will not just impact their lives personally and not just the city of Jerusalem and the local region of Judea and not just the nation of Israel, the world, the nations, the Gentiles. In fact, Jesus already declared this truth previous in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And what is the testimony of the book of Acts? What is the testimony of the letters that Paul wrote to Gentile churches? What is the testimony of the prevalence of Christianity in our world today? where Christianity is no longer this localized small cult as it was perceived to be in the first century. It is this global, dominant religion, the only major religion to infiltrate 
different continents and break through hard cultures that have existed for centuries. Even right now, though the church in the West, in America, in Europe, may be on the decline, we are seeing on a global level many come to Christ in South America and in China and in Africa. Our God is a global God, and he's on the move. And what is the story of the end of it all? The book of Revelation is perhaps the most difficult book to understand, but at the same time, it's the easiest to summarize. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. God said it. That settles it. Amen. Friends, we are invited by Jesus to be part of his dominion. Why did we just sing that his name is the highest above them all? He's the king. And friends, what I want to tell you is his kingdom started 2,000 years ago. We're not waiting for it. It started back then. It's continued through the centuries, and it's been growing. We've been getting stronger. And it will continue to grow to where it becomes a full kingdom on earth. If you're a note taker, I want to talk about this global spread as we consider what evangelism looks like. We said evangelism isn't just big outreaches for the community. Those are great. Evangelism isn't just the presentation of the gospel that is necessary. We must verbalize the gospel. Evangelism is also the way we treat one another within the church. The world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. If you're a note taker, let's talk about this dominion spreading. So let's talk about domination by one, smiling, domination two, by submission, and number three, domination by service. I'll explain what these each mean here. Let's talk about number one, domination by smiling. What a way to describe how the church will dominate, how the dominion of Christ will will expand. By us smiling, that sounds very mushy, but may I... Turn your attention to John chapter 13, verse 1, where John, he says this line. And remember, John was there. He was one of the disciples. He says that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He loved them to the end. See, what you need to see is John 13 is not so much about our determination and grit and commitment to love each other. It's actually not so much about that. It's more correct to say that it's about Jesus' radical love for wretched people. It's more about the power of Jesus to transform prideful hearts to become servant hearts. That's really what John 13 is about. It's not so much a stressor on you and I to muster up in our own flesh, in our own uh, strength, this grit to love one another. It's, It's more, look at the way our king has loved us. Friends, the gospel is the only superhero story where the hero dies for villains. That's our Jesus. As Pastor Tim Keller would say, Jesus didn't die for us because we were lovely. He dies to make us lovely. Consider how heavy the heart of Christ was. See, I don't know about you, but when I get overwhelmed, I become so burdened, I'm unable to see the needs of those around me. 
fact, I am just coming out of a season which is, might have been the hardest season of my 35 years of life. Some church drama going on, heavy stuff. And for a whole two months, I'm now coming out of that season. For a whole two months, I felt like it was, it was very difficult to see the needs of my wife and my children. I was so burdened on myself. I was unable to lift my eyes off of my own situation and look to the needs of others. But look at our Christ. When the pressures of hell and the schemes of man press against him, what oozes out of him? A consideration for others, serving his brothers, ultimately laying down his life for his friends. It is true, he loved his own until, until the end. And then when he tells these disciples to love one another, here's what we have to understand. These disciples were told to work from love, not for love. Let me explain. He's telling the disciples, love one another. But what came first? Jesus' love for them. See, their treatment for one another in it, 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 uh, to one another came from a place of already been served and loved by Christ. We do kingdom work as disciples of Christ in a similar way. We don't, we don't do kingdom work for the love of God. We do it from the love of God. And when we understand that, you know what it should do? It should make us smile. And we understand that we don't have to work for God's love and favor and blessings. We've already been given that in Christ. We work from that foundation. We dominate by smiling, not striving. And we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. We have the benefit of his promise. The gates of hell won't prevail against his church. He wins. And it's this perspective that so motivated Paul that when he told the Roman Christians... When he wrote their, his letter to them, he said, y'all are more than conquerors. You're more than victors. When he told the Ephesians, he said, y'all are already seated in heaven. It's as if you're already done. The victory is so assured for you. See, following Jesus is sacrifice, but it's sacrifice with a smile because we are so loved by him. Friend, are you a Christian today? Have you confessed your sin? Have you placed your, your faith in Christ alone to save you? Then you are more than a conqueror. You are already seated in the heavens. You and I can smile today. Amen? So we, number one, we dominate by smiling. Number two, we dominate by submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just point out that Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. He didn't say a new suggestion. He said, I am commanding you to love one another. What is the gospel? I, one of the ways I teach my church the gospel is the three L words. Lost, love, Lord. And if you commit that to memory, it's an easy way for you to kind of have a framework when you're sharing the gospel with your loved ones, lost, love, Lord, lost. I am lost without Christ. I am a sinner in need. I need a Savior. Love. 
though I am lost, I'm more loved by God. Though he knows all my sin, he sent Jesus to pay the penalty of my sin. He loves me. And if I put my faith in Christ, I receive that love and I'm justified. My identity changes. My destination changes. I'm a new person in Christ. Lost love, Lord. What that means, Lord is a synonymous word with king. Jesus is my king. He's the highest authority in my life. If my opinion contradicts with the teaching of Jesus, my opinion must submit to the king. What it means to be a Christian is to be one who was, who was lost, who is now loved, and who's, make, who's making Jesus the Lord of their life in all spheres of their life. What does the word Christian mean? It literally means little Christs, little, little copies of Jesus. We're supposed to follow his teaching. My pastor friend, Andre Randolph, has a church in Memphis, Tennessee, and he posted this on his Facebook a few weeks ago, and I penned it down. He says, American Christianity says, simply fit Jesus into your busy life. Biblical Christianity says, only follow Jesus with your entire life. He says, the former is of man, but the latter is of God. The missionary Hudson Taylor said, Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Friend, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is there clear evidence through your life and through your lips that Jesus is your king? The church dominates when we make Jesus the Lord, when we understand that what he has said is not suggestion, it's a commandment. Friends, Jesus died for us. May we live for him. Amen? We dominate by smiling. We dominate by submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, we dominate by service. How do we win? This is, sounds so preposterous. It sounded more preposterous 2,000 years ago. We win by washing feet. We win the game. We take over the world by washing feet, by turning the other cheek, by praying for persecutors, by going the extra mile, by blessing enemies. Last week, I read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I told you 1 Corinthians 13 is a commentary. It's an exposition of John 13, where Paul gives a fuller explanation and immediate examples of what loving one another looks like. He said love is patient, love is kind, and so forth. I'd like to give you a, um, a Mitchell translation of John 13, especially made for First Baptist here, okay? Here's how it goes. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. Um, if I've got the amazing spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, but, but I don't have love, I sound like when the worship leader is only playing the cymbal nonstop. It's annoying. The drummer is just a noising, loud gong. If I've graduated from seminary, if I've taken all the classes I could take here at First Baptist, if I do two hours of Bible study every day in my devotional life, but I have not love, I'm not actually growing, I'm just showing. If I've got the kind of faith that believes that all the traffic in this area could immediately go away. 
but I have not love, who cares about my extraordinary faith? If I don't just give a tenth of my income, if I give a one hundredth of my income, all of it, but I don't have love, I don't get any reward and glory. If I become a missionary and go to a hostile tribe that hates Christianity and they torture me to death because I refuse to keep my mouth shut about the love of Jesus for them. If I do that but have not love, I don't get any reward and glory either. Friends, may we love one another as Christ has loved us. But imagine this idea that when we love one another, what Jesus told them in the immediate application was what loving one another looks like is washing one another's feet. The world's going to know that I'm a disciple of Jesus by washing Bartholomew's foot, Peter, Jude, Judas. Imagine a high school football coach giving a pregame prep talk to his team. All right, team, we're going to win this game. Yeah, we're going to do it, coach. All right, linemen, when the opposing linemen lunge at you after the snap, I want you just to lie down and let them trample all over you. They're going, huh? Corners, those of you who are guarding the receivers, when the quarterback throws the ball at the receiver you're guarding and you see that ball traveling in the air, step out of his way and let him catch the ball without any hindrance from you. What did you put in your coffee this morning, coach? Kickers, when you have a chance for the field goal and when the ball is hiked and it's lined up for you to kick it, go ahead and pick up that ball and hand it to the defense. The initial teachings of Jesus, the way he talked about his kingdom didn't make sense to the ears back then. I would say it also doesn't make sense to our ears now. See, the Roman world was a display of brute power upon their um, those that they oppressed, the rest of the world. The cross was the symbol of their domination. If you don't bow the knee to Rome, that will happen to you. And how has now, 2,000 years later, the cross become the most iconic symbol in the entire world? Jesus took over the world by rebranding the cross. The cross which was a place of mockery and shame and weakness. The power of Rome has become the home of the power of Jesus. Jesus saved the world through the cross. Incredible. Now, friends, as we close up here, this message, it has been an honor. I want to just give a couple of very practical things for you. I want to be a pastor that preaches the word of God faithfully and I, I want your hearts to see the profound nature of, of God's character. But I also want to be intensely practical. I've got a very young church. You know, I'm 35, and I'm one of the older ones. So I've learned I've got to be so practical with them. And then when I look at the teachings of Paul, when he wrote letters to the churches, they're both very theological and then very practical <laughs> at the same time. Can I give you just three things? If we want to make serious that church is a family on a mission together, things, and maybe they don't apply to you. Maybe pray about them, meditate on them throughout the week. Number one, if we are to be a family on a mission trying to fulfill this great 
this new commandment to love one another and wash one another's feet, here's what we need to do. Number one, we need to prioritize this family. In fact, in my church, I try to say the word family even more than church. Because something has happened over the years. We understand, those of us who've been taught well, that church is not a building, it's a people. But still, somehow, in the way we use the word and we think about church, what happens if you just replace the word church with family? Here's what happens. Instead of you saying, I'm going to go to church, what if you said, I'm going to go worship with my family? Think about the significance when someone says, I'm leaving that church. If it sounded like, I'm leaving that family, it's different. But the church is a people, not a place. Can I tell you, as a guest preacher, prioritize this family? Prioritize this family. Come early. Come early for the family worship service. And then can I tell you this one? Linger afterwards. The best meat is the meat that's been marinating for a while. It's had a chance to linger in that sweet sauce. You know what I mean? Sorry if you're vegan. I got to ask you something for you to think about. Is church more of an event or more like a family? See, when we go to a sporting event or a concert event, when it ends, we just go back to our cars, back to our lives. But some of us in the church, we're basically Olympic sprinters because as soon as the service ends, we sprint to our car and leave. But if church is a family, I, I, I challenge you to linger a little bit. Linger and stir up love in one another. Pray for somebody. Get prayer from somebody. Encourage someone. Uh, in my church, we call this holy loitering. I tell them, you're allowed a holy loiter at this church. Don't jam to the car. Stick around. Prioritize the family. Number two, prioritize your personal time with God. Prioritize your personal time with God. You are your brother's keeper. You know those Snickers commercials? You're not the same when you're hungry. The woman's a bear, an angry bear, yelling at her husband. He hands her a sticker, a Snicker bar, and then she immediately calms down to a calm woman. You know, you and I, we are not the same when we are not in the word of God, when we're not in prayer. When we're not in a spiritually healthy place, we backbite and devour one another. We are our brother and our sister's keeper. And part of our responsibility is to so cultivate a devotional life that when I do come with the family, I've got the love of Jesus to give them. Amen? So part of why we read the Bible and pray is not just for us. Everything that God wants to do in us is so that people around us might be blessed through us, including the church. And then number three, we need to demonstrate God's love. We need to demonstrate God's love. So here's what I mean by that, okay? Because... Some of us are introverts. Some of us are introverts, so we're, we're more quiet, and I understand. Actually, there's a great article online that I read a couple years ago that made the case that Jesus was probably an introvert. It's an interesting article, but needless to say. Did you know that part of the way Jesus has loved us is he demonstrated it? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love is evident. 
It was demonstrable. Friend, if your interactions with church family members were recorded and presented in a court of law, could you be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt of demonstrable love in your church family? See, I think sometimes we hide behind, well, I know she knows that I love her. Well, I know he knows that I'm always here for him if he needs it. But may I just challenge you to think a little differently, to demonstrate your love. Sometimes and often, it's the words that we say. Last week, I read to you the 1 Thessalonians verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Encourage one another. The word encouragement. Place courage in another one's heart. Friend, when was the last time you received encouragement from God through the face of a brother or sister in Christ? It is incredible. Can I tell you guys a story real quick? There's a, there's a, there's a young man at my church. Last week, we had a prayer meeting. Our church has gone through a hard time. And we decided to call for a night of worship and prayer. And we came together. We prayed for each other. We had PowerPoint slides of different prayer topics. And I went to this brother who means a lot to me. And I said, can you pray for me? Can you pray for me to have wisdom, humility, and courage as the pastor of this church in its next season? And he's a very quiet guy. He's very introverted, this guy. He said, sure, pastor. And here's what he said. He said, Father... Take all the pain that Pastor Mitchell is carrying and transform it into a greater empathy for people. And I, I started crying. My, my brother in the church became the face of God's grace. And I was just so blessed and so touched. He washed my feet in that moment. See, sometimes... Demonstrable love looks like words. Sometimes it looks like a physical touch. I, I think so often about the way Jesus used physical touch when he healed people and he got close with them. Sometimes it's words of affirmation. It's prayers. It's patience, kindness, gentleness. Friends, Jesus demonstrated his love for us. May we demonstrate our love for one another. Our distinguishing mark as followers of Jesus the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We declare it's your will over our will. It's your word over the world. It's your way over our way. In fact, your ways are not our ways. King Jesus, be the king of our life. May the way of our King be seen in us. Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. As we obey the teachings of Jesus, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be a great discomfort. So we need you, Spirit, to comfort us, strengthen us, lead us, heal us. Help us to obey the Lord's ways. Help us to become a servant to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.